Good morning. It's good to see everybody. Uh, it was fun to have the celebration today for our kids that were moving up. I couldn't help but notice that when I walked in today, I saw a lot of faces that have already moved on. And so if you wouldn't mind, if you are a product of this church's youth ministry, would you please stand if you've returned home from college or you're here for the first time in a while. Let us recognize you guys for being back. <clears throat> I'm acutely aware of one of those being home. We have a lot more laundry than we had. So it's good to see everybody back again. Uh, I also would like to tell you that I am so glad Jason closed those back pews off. If you have never had the chance to sit on the front one, two, or three rows of this church when we are praising God in song, you are cheating yourself of why God asked for it to be done. It is amazing, and praise team, thank you very much for leading us in that. It's, it's great to hear. For those of you who are visiting, my name is Troy Greer. I am not the normal preacher, and I will confirm why here in about the next five to 20 minutes. <laughs> I'm just kidding. And I do have to tell you, when you wake up, and you're like, oh great, I, I have to preach today. You get a little nervous, and you think, I have to be on my game. I have to focus. And then Tisha gets up here, and since she's done, all I can think of is, Beans don't burn in the kitchen. <laughs> Beans don't burn on the grill. And I've been singing Moving On Up now for the last 20 minutes because that's all they had on Armed Forces Networks when I grew up. So, Tisha, thank you very little for that. I, I appreciate it. Now, I did say, because I did promise I wouldn't walk around the stage because normally I do that, and they're like, it's hard to kind of move the camera because I thought I'd have to do the George Jefferson strut, which I'm about the right size for it anyway, so... I had something that struck me a couple of weeks ago. It's an event that I have started watching more and more, not because of the significance of the event, but because of the participants. When I read this first phrase, some of you will tune in immediately to what it is. With the first pick of the 2018 NFL Draft, the Cleveland Browns select. Now, I don't know if you're laughing at Cleveland, or the fact that this is what's on my mind. But with this very simple statement, one of our most interesting cultural phenomenons in the United States takes place. For those of you that don't know, I'm talking about the NFL draft. This past April 26th through the 28th, all of the teams in the National Football League decided their future fate by selecting amongst the best of all collegiate athletes that are out there. Outside of the stories of the individual players, I have always found the draft to be an interesting event in and of itself, not even the individual players. It's a reflection of human nature. The draft order itself is determined by who does most poorly the season before. Raise your hand in your place of employment if this is the way your work life happens to go, I've had a really bad year. I'd like a raise, a new office, and the pick from the best people in our, in our work pool. It doesn't work that way, but it does in the NFL draft. But the draft is designed to create parity, that interesting concept that every team deserves the equal opportunity to compete. I would love to say that this plays into the concept of hope, right? Hope for downtrodden, 
Cleveland Browns fans. Hope for their team, hope for their community, their fans. But it really is not the reason they created the draft. They created the draft to protect the economic interest of the owners. The thought being that balance would generate more interest, more ticket sales, more eyes on TVs, and therefore more advertising revenue. Simply put, the NFL believed that perpetually horrible teams were bad for the long-term business interest of the league and its owners. Where this leaves Cleveland, I have no idea. <clears throat> I saw that Johnny Manziel is now playing in the Canadian Football League, which is pretty close to Cleveland anyway, so I guess the whole thing kind of ended up there. But the solution to this challenge of keeping the team's balance was to create this draft that we know. The concept was to let the weakest teams choose first amongst the best available collegiate athletes. So the draft has become this massive event that makes careers or shatters careers by who you select in the effort to try to make your team better. And so in each spring, we get to witness this process in action as teams research individual players. They decide who's going to bring the most benefit to their franchise, maybe their community. I've always found this aspect to be most intriguing for me because I tend to be a better collegiate fan than the NFL. I, of course, love the University of Alabama until they started sucking all my money away. Thank you, Victoria. But this year in particular, the human aspect of the draft became abundantly clear to me. The athletes under consideration are always the fastest, they're the biggest, they're the strongest, right? These are the players that every team thinks that they want to have. But there are so many talented individuals around and available, they're oftentimes not selected by how good they are, but by their flaws. And this year that became very interesting to watch. Which players may be just a little bit too short? I empathize with that. Which ones are perhaps too slow, not strong enough? Maybe they played in a system that doesn't translate very well to the NFL. Who doesn't understand how to read a complex offense or a complex defense? You know, maybe there's red flags around their character. Going into this year's draft, there was one player in particular that I had taken a lot of interest in, and that's Alabama's Minka Fitzpatrick. Uh, Victoria knows that he's known simply as Minka. He's one of the nicest guys you'll ever run into, down-to-earth, humble. His parents lost everything in a flood. He's from the Northeast, and, and during one of the hurricanes, they lost everything. They had no flood insurance. And he was attending a very elite private school, doing great academically, and he fought through everything to work three jobs. His dad was working three jobs to try to maintain things. This is a really fantastic individual, but he's also an incredibly gifted athlete. Going into the draft, people thought that he would be a top seven pick, perhaps even top three. He completed his junior year as a three-year starter, which is hard to do anywhere, much less at a place like the University of Alabama. Around campus, he is known for his faith. You'll see in one of the pictures up here on draft day, he was wearing white. He had heard rumors that if he fell out of the top ten, he'd be picked by Miami, and he said, I'm going with the Miami Vice theme. So he wore his white jacket. 
But you'll notice inside in the lower, I don't know what side it would be for you guys, your lower right, he had his favorite Bible verse. You'll notice in another picture when he's actually in his Alabama uniform, Hebrews 12.1 was on his belt. He really is focused on his faith in doing things in his career. Top three, top seven. As the draft got underway, the first three picks came without his name being called. The next four picks were made, and his name wasn't called. In fact, the first ten picks of the NFL draft came before his name was called at 11 by the Miami Dolphins. Doesn't sound like a big deal, right? One of the top 11 players picked. For him, dropping out of the top three will cost him over $14 million in his first guaranteed contract. Falling out of the top seven will cost him $11 million in guaranteed money for his first contract. The interesting thing about that is a general manager for a team that had looked at needing a defensive back was asked, why did you pass on Minka Fitzpatrick? And his answer to me was very interesting. He says, we watched film of Alabama's defense. He played cornerback, safety, and linebacker. We couldn't figure out how he would translate to the NFL. $14 million lost because they couldn't figure out where to play you. Then on the other side of that, there was a quarterback by the name of Josh Allen. He's a quarterback at the University of Wyoming, kind of came out of nowhere. He is like the perfect NFL dream. Six foot five, 237 pounds, runs like a deer, has a cannon for an arm, threw a ball 70 yards for an NFL scout during one of his workouts. By the end of the initial draft processes, going to combines and all the things that they do, many analysts had predicted that he would probably be the number one pick overall. A position that winds up with a $33 million guaranteed contract in the next four years of your life as a 20-year-old. Pretty scary stuff. However, two days before the draft, word started to leak about some problems with his Twitter account. As a 12 to 15-year-old, he had said some things on Twitter that were just now surfacing years later. In a game with a high percentage of minority athletes and where locker room dynamic is everything for a team, he had made some posts as a 12 and 13-year-old that were racially insensitive. He dropped from the first pick of the NFL draft to the seventh pick, costing him $12 million in guaranteed money. This process continues over and over and over again. The best athletes in the world are broken down with every potential flaw being used against them. Each flaw and excuse to not pick you are to value you just a little bit less. I found myself kind of dwelling on this whole idea that your flaws get to determine your self-value and worth. Imagine every day being defined by your worst day, your worst performance, your worst moment, the worst thing you said to a spouse or a significant other, and that's what defined everything for your moment in time. I find this happening in my own life from time to time because our flaws tend to be very personal, right? We tend to rank flaws. 
Because typically our flaws that we have aren't that bad. It's everyone else's flaws that we think are really bad. For instance, my wife accuses me of being impatient. I just don't think she goes quick enough. <laughs> so again, it's all about perspective. So whether in the eyes of others you are worthy of being selected, it was during this reflection, the contrast between human nature and God's nature becomes increasingly clear. Human nature dwells on flaws. It makes choices based on those flaws. Human nature allows for flaws to be subjective, as we've already mentioned, but God simplifies the subjectivity. We know from Romans chapter 3, verse 23, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He says, I'm going to simplify for this. You don't get to rank. You don't get to pick. Oh, well, I struggle with addiction, but it's not that big of a deal. It's only on the weekends. Oh, really? Well, that's okay, because you're just as bad as somebody who murdered someone. I'm going to make it very simple. You either are or you aren't. It's very, very simple. Human nature allows for us to gradiate these flaws, these failures. God nature is much simpler. He says that we aren't perfect, but God is, and anything that falls short of that classifies us as one ranking, and that is we're all sinners. He makes it very, very clear for us. But the best news is that God also provides our deliverance in that state. He says, hey, don't freak out, because if we continue with Romans chapter 3, verse 23, and start looking at verse 24, it says, For, yeah, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but we are all freely justified by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So He gives us our path out of it. Yeah, we may be flawed. We are all flawed. But human nature judges flaws through this judgment by choosing acceptance or rejection, right? We do this all the time. We look at something we say, well, I'm not going to be a part of it, or I'm going to be a part of it. But the funny thing is, is God's way is the opposite. He lets us know we are all flawed and offers us the chance to accept or reject Him. So in human nature, we take someone's flaws and say, I'm going to reject them from my life. God says, hey, you're all flawed. Please accept me. I wonder what it would be like to have a spiritual draft. I don't know about you guys and, and the people around you, but I think that one of the most understated gifts that God gave to us is the gift of fellowship. Sometimes I get with my friends that are faithful, and I find that they don't have to tell me anything brilliant. They don't have to introduce me to a new concept or a new book. Sometimes just being in the presence of people who are faithful is enough to uplift you, right? But imagine if we had the chance of going back to pick a couple of people, just stewards of the Bible, wonderful, wonderful examples of faith that could join us in our faith journey. What might it look like if human standards were used to judge them the same way? Let's consider some early round selection profiles of the spiritual draft. What might surface as flaws and our best prospects? Let's consider first Moses. He's got a wicked stick. <laughs> Moses is the guy. He's very well thought of. This is his draft profile, right? Very well thought of. He's done some really interesting leadership things. But he does have a criminal history, although never convicted. He doesn't like to lead. He doesn't follow directions very well with the overhead stick below to the rock. He's easily discouraged. If you don't believe it, go back and look at Exodus. 
Every time the people grumbled, he just took all that and turned right around and grumbled to God. In addition, you've got the whole clinger-on mentality with family. He wants his brother to do everything for him. So maybe we shouldn't consider Moses for our spiritual journey. In fact, maybe David is the number one pick, right? David's the number one pick. He's a strong candidate. I knew you'd get that. Did you read it? I'm glad. I did that for one person. I knew Riley O'Rear would read my fake Twitter account on there, and he would understand it. So David is a strong candidate for the first overall pick, right? He's a great leader. He's handsome. He's marketable. However, he's got relationships with weapons company, and there's an Instagram photo with a sling. He's accusations around womanizing, and there's still rumors about manslaughter charges. Well, then let's go a little more contemporary. Let's go with Peter, right? We'll go a little more modern. He's strong, he's aggressive, but he's also prone to acting without thinking. Loyalty and honesty may come into question. Accusations of violent behavior and apparently a dislike of ears. (laughs) Now see, in our way of thinking, these flaws are limitations. They're a sign of weakness. It's a good thing that our way of thinking isn't God's way of thinking. In fact, he reminds us in Isaiah 55, chapter 9, our relative position when it comes to this whole idea of thought. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. He doesn't think the way we think. He doesn't see our flaws as limitations. They're opportunities for us to grow our dependency on Him. They are opportunities for us to throw off the human nature of our own flaws. In fact, these are the emotions we feel around them. Shame, disappointment, frustration, doubt. Let's trade that for the confidence in God's awesome power and grace. Because if we rely on ourselves, we already know we're flawed. We are damaged goods. He wants us to experience his peace that is so incredible, he tells us we won't understand why we're experiencing it. We have so many incredible examples of faith, and we tend to see their spiritual strength in almost an intimidating fashion. We wonder if those biblical characters, we could ever emulate what they do, but it's interesting. Every example we have, and I think God intended this, had a flaw, had something that we have to read over and over again where they had to overcome it where they had to challenge themselves to rely more on God than themselves. Consider Paul. You know, I hate to say this, Paul was really good at almost everything he did. The whole persecution thing, he had quite the reputation, right? I mean, he was known throughout the entire believing kingdom by name as to who he was. We see that over and over again. In fact, when he was converted and began to try to do the Lord's work, what did the believers do around him? They wanted nothing to do with them, right? So he was very effective at what he did. Once he was transformed, he worked day and night to try to bring people to God through Jesus. Yet often when he speaks, he speaks of his own weaknesses. 
and doing the very things he does not want to do from a faith perspective. In the second Corinthians chapter 12, Paul points out the stark contrast between human nature and God's nature. I know this will be small, so I'll read it very, very carefully. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain. So no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say or because of these surpassing great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I think human nature is such that we want to hide our flaws and weaknesses. In fact, even at work, I will tell people, work to your strengths, don't work to your weaknesses. So we want to try to hide those things. We want to stand tall. We want to stand with pride, using whatever strength we have to mask or overcome those so-called failures. But God is fine with our weaknesses and flaws because I think he thinks as it knocks us to our knees, we're that much closer to looking up. And I think we forget that. I think, you know, we tend to rely on ourselves an awful lot at those very times where he wants us just to give up and to look up. Peter is actually my favorite Bible character because to me he's the most relatable. Apparently he's impatient. Mandy's right. He's a little stubborn at times. He acts out, he lashes out, he does things sort of, uh, you know, ready, fire, aim. Wouldn't be the first time I've been accused of that. And so he's very relatable to me. Certainly we know about Peter's flaws, right? His denial is one of the most commonly talked about things in the Bible. And that's really unfortunate, because if you look at his pattern and his history, Peter's actually a wonderful inspiration. I can't imagine giving up everything to follow Jesus, the Son of God, and at his last meal he's ever having with you guys as an organized team, all the people that have given up everything to follow him, and he's saying what's going to happen to him, and you say, oh God, no, never. I will stand by your side no matter what. And the person you've given up everything to follow, the Son of God, looks you in the face and says, before morning, you're going to deny me not once, not twice, but three times. I'm sure it wasn't the easiest thing to hear. It had to be brutal to hear that. But the interesting thing is, I think Luke's account captures something that's often overlooked about this story. And that is, if we look back to uh, Luke chapter 22, it's what precedes this when he's actually told that he's going to have this issue. Beginning in verse 31 and 32 of, of chapter 22, he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. 
And this is the part that hits me most heavily. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Because I think the time when Satan is most effective in us is when we realize we have failed and he's in our ear. He doesn't want us to turn back to God. He wants us to accelerate that process of turning away, getting further away and further away and further away until you've lost that relationship. But even Peter was told, all this stuff is going to happen, but turn back and then strengthen your brothers. And it's kind of interesting. It isn't our flaws, our weaknesses, or failures that determine our relationship with God but it's our willingness to turn to him in spite of all those things. We need to rely on him, to believe in him. Human nature may label Peter's actions as cowardice, maybe fearful. I certainly don't know what I would have said in those circumstances. My guess is it's probably just a little bit overwhelming. He was having a bad day. With everything he'd seen, what he had in his mind, here is someone who has been healing people and doing these miraculous miracles and he allowed himself to be taken captive by mere people. I can't imagine standing by a fire trying to reconcile all this and then people saying, hey, shouldn't you be punished with him? Oh no, I don't think so. I'm not sure I wouldn't have been right there with him. But I think Peter's words later in his life will tell you where his heart and mind is after he returned to do God's work. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Those don't sound like the words of a man who is defined by his flaws, his failures, or his weakness. It sounds like a man perfectly at ease with himself, with his faith, and the Lord. We began today by reflecting on the NFL draft and its propensity to define some of the best athletes in the world by their limitations, their weakness, their flaws, their mistakes that they have made, maybe even as a 12 to 15-year-old kid. God's draft is the opposite. He begs us to draft him into our lives, to accept his invitation into a covenant of grace established by the greatest gift he could give us, his son Jesus. God wants you. He wants me, despite our weaknesses, our flaws, and our failures. Everyone is fast enough, smart enough, tall enough, the perfect weight, and I'll pretend for a moment a good head of hair. <laughs> Everyone's upside is limitless, and their flaws are irrelevant compared to God's grace and his strength. He is calling each of us today to join him, to come to him, to rely on him. We're about to enter our time of prayer. I encourage each of you to stand. And after I pray for us as a whole body, I would encourage you to seek out friends or strangers 
for our time to pray together. I want you guys to be willing to praise God for our blessings, to seek His comfort in our sadness, to seek His power in our weakness, and to praise Him for the glorious gift of His Son, Jesus. During our time of prayer, our praise team will be leading us in song. If you'd rather uh, join in praise with song, that will be available to you. And we'll also have shepherds down front if you'd like to come and pray with one of our shepherds. So let's bow as a congregation before we enter our time of prayer. Gracious God, your power is limitless. You spoke and created everything that we can see, touch, sense, taste, and contemplate. We pray, God, that we will rely on you, that we will quit worrying about our own self-human-defined limitations, and we will allow our weakness to become your strength. We pray, God, that you will be with this congregation, everyone in this room, everyone within earshot, is guilty of being a sinner. We all have flaws, and to you, God, it doesn't matter. You accept us as we are. You just ask that we come. God, we pray that as we go into this time of prayer that you will bless the individuals in this body, that as we come together and share the gift of fellowship and praying for each other, Lord, that you will lift us all up, that you will hear our prayers, that you will give us that peace that passes all understanding. God, help us to worship you, help us to honor you, and help us to always be grateful for the wonderful gift of your son, Jesus. And in Christ's name, amen.